Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the show this week by our chairman, Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. How are you? Good. Good to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Took us a few goes of uh, <laughs> connecting microphones remotely and all this stuff, but but we're here. And you know, Sean, it's a great example because we had to walk, work through a bit of problem-solving processes and all that <laughs> of the achievement style, and yep. that just happens to be the topic of today's conversation. So, Sean, a little while ago, what was it, a few weeks ago, a month ago maybe, Yep. I sat in on one of your workshops and you went off on a bit of a tangent, which I love, and told a story about you know the early days of human synergistics and Clay Lafferty, who was the guy who came up with the LSI and the Circumplex, and talked about his particular interest in achievement. And I hadn't really heard that story before, so I thought it might be really interesting to get you in and, and to kind of talk to it. Thank you. What do you reckon? Yep, absolutely. goes right back to the very beginning of human synergistics. So for those who don't know, Dr. J. Clayton Lafferty, otherwise known as Clay, was uh, founded Human Synergistics, wrote the original simulations, wrote uh, the Lifestyles Inventory as it was when we first started working with him in 1978. At that stage, LSI was, as we now know, LSI 1. So just to context some of the stuff I'll talk about, Clay was a what I would call a classic cognitive psychologist. He was trained and believed very strongly what runs around inside your head determines your personal effectiveness mm. and your own. So he decided to go down the track of looking for a way to measure your thinking styles, as he called them, and the implications that they had for effectiveness. And then, of course, people got, gee, it would be great to see what other people think and what they see and what they attribute to me. And so thus uh-huh. eventually LSI 2 was born, etc. But Lifestyles Inventory began as a pure self-report based on self-concept, interpreted into thought processes, how you think about yourself and the context within which you function, and therefore the implications for personal effectiveness around that. Mm-hmm. So in, in putting the circumplex together, Clay was um, influenced by a, a relatively small number of key thinkers, but the one for topic discussion today is David McClelland, who was a Harvard professor. And McClelland came up with his motivational need theory, which was based on the work of a prior psychologist uh, Henry Murray, and uh, McClellan proposed that there are three main types of motivation. So I do things because I want to achieve, he called that NH, so the need for achievement. I do it because it gives me status and prestige and power, so that was N power. Mm -hmm. And the third was N affil, affiliation as we know it in the circumplex. I do this because I enjoy interacting with other people and I get a sense of pleasure from being around others. So he fascinated Clay because he was one of the first people that identified that a way of measuring human thinking and relating that to individual effectiveness. So mm. he did a, a number of different studies showing how individuals, even at the child age, who were higher in achievement than power and affiliation, tended to perform significantly better than, than those who were high in uh, power or affiliation, for instance. Mm. So this sort of going right back to the very early days. So Clay would have been putting the circumplex together in his head in the early 70s. 
he was fascinated with this whole notion of being able to measure what runs around inside your head and show you how that affects you in terms of your ability to perform your task, your job, your ability to interact effectively with others, your ability to solve problems, your ability to handle stressful circumstances. Uh-huh. And it has a lot to do with, I guess, what we might call nowadays is mental resilience and well-being. Mm. And it was particularly McClellan that drove Clay to develop the circumplex, well, the work of McClellan, I should say, not McClellan the person, but the work of David McClellan that drove Clay to develop the circumplex as he did. So he saw McClellan's work as being primarily task-oriented, that's why it's on the left-hand side, and a motivational process that is geared towards achieving a sense of accomplishment from what you do, so thus it's in the satisfaction top half. Mm. One of the things he felt, however, looking at McClellan's data, was that people who are extremely high, and I've actually seen this, individuals who are extremely high in achievement, but not particularly high in humanistic encouraging, for instance, can be really quite scary people because they go straight to the nub of the problem. They make decisions very quickly, very easy. They're very good at identifying what the issue, the problem is, etc. They can move fast, do this just as I'm talking now. Uh-huh. And so for people who don't think like that, they could just be downright scary people. Mm. So not only did he want to find a way of measuring achievement thinking different to the way in which McClellan did, and I'll come back to that later, he also felt it needed to be softened, and that was the word that he used, it needed to be softened by something like humanistic encouraging to say that that task accomplishment need is focused on something that involves also leading and working with and involving other people. So thus we like to see a nice balance between the task and the people side of the circumplex, and particularly 11 o'clock achievement and 1 o'clock humanistic. Well, just on that, Sean, because you talked about need for achievement, need for power, need for affiliation. Was the affiliation that McClellan was talking about the same as we understand it in the circumplex today, or was it a bit different? Pretty much, yes. It's pretty much the same, okay. Yeah. It's that need for relationships, it's that need for interpersonal presence, it's that need for having close personal relationships with people and all of that kind of stuff. The power is not quite McClellan. It's based on the uh, the end power work, but it's actually more based on Henry Murray's original definition of the need for power. And so it's about the status, prestige, control. And McClellan wrote extensively about how need for power can be appropriate in the corporate world. You've got to remember he was writing in the 50s and 60s about the corporate world, and power was the norm then, let's say. But Clay never saw that as being appropriate. So he was interested in doing the power stuff that veered more towards the way Henry Murray was writing about it. So to cut a long story short, he really did want to find a way of putting the ability to identify achievement level in the individual's hands and not just say that you are high or you are low on achievement, but also to help why you are high and why you are low on achievement. And even more importantly, perhaps if you're low on achievement, therefore why are you low on achievement? What are you high on? Is it dependency, conventional approval, right, etc.? So McClellan used a particularly complex diagnostic tool to measure your need, achievement, need power, need affiliation, called the thematic aperception test, which I won't go into any detail, but it's basically a, a picture. It's like a pen drawing type of picture where you project your own motivational needs into the story that that picture paints for you. So it might be a scene where you've got a sort of a relatively youngish couple, maybe in their late 20s or something like that, male, female, and they're having quite an intense discussion and sitting behind them 
watching them even more intently as an older woman. So the idea of the TAT is that I would look at that and if I was high on achievement, I would say something like, well, they're trying to solve a problem. You can see that the younger couple are having some real difficulties coming to the heart of the matter and the older person at the back has got something to contribute, except so I'll project my inherent need to solve a problem and to achieve a goal into that picture. Gotcha. If I'm high need for affiliation, I look at it and say, mm, I think that younger couple at the front look like they're having an argument and the, the older woman you know, might be the mother or something and she's quite worried about the intensity of the act. So it's now about relationships. Right. So that would, that would indicate I'm need affiliation. And the need for power is maybe the the younger couple are having an argument and the older one is trying to exert influence and control. So I now project my need for power, status and prestige into that picture and use that as the story. Now, it requires extraordinary experience and qualifications to use something like that. And remember, Clay's ultimate goal with the LSI was to put in the individual's hands the tools for their own development and their own growth of that achievement or whatever it might be. And so that was really a very strong driving force was how can I measure achievement thinking in a way that doesn't require that sort of stuff. So it's one of the things that influenced them to go down the self-concept kind of route, the self-image route, and the implications that self-concept has for how I think and the implications for how I think have on how effective I am. And so, Sean, the other day you were talking about, you know, that was the starting point for Clay. So it was, yeah. he had a particular fascination with achievement thinking. Yep. In particular, and then some of the others were kind of brought on to soften that. What? Why was it that achievement was so important to him, do you think? I think it was the fact that you could measure it and you could see that it actually helped people be effective. And Clallan did extensive work in not just measuring people's motivational force, but also saying, okay, you're not particularly high in achievement, for instance, on my analysis for your TAT results. So what can I do to help you become more achievement-oriented? So he he figured out that you could actually teach people to use achievement thinking, and that was absolutely groundbreaking, and that's really the thing that captured Clay's heart, is I could use this theory around achievement thinking to teach people to adopt a way of thinking, ultimately, and behaving as well, that had dramatic implications for their effectiveness. And so that was, that was really important to him, this you could learn it. Furthermore, I mean, some of the criticism of McClellan's work that it was a very Western-oriented approach. So he took himself off to India for a couple of years <laughs> and replicated all of, all of his studies in India and got exactly the same results and also wrote a paper on you can teach people in the Indian subcontinent how to use achievement thinking if they're not particularly high in achievement thinking. And so I guess now is probably a good time to say, so what is achievement thinking? Mm. And again, each of these five characteristics in their own way fascinated Clay, who of course was high in achievement thinking, so he could identify himself in many of these things. Much of the writing, by the way, around McClellan's work nowadays is under the banner of entrepreneurialism. So if you uh, if you Google entrepreneurship or entrepreneurialism, uh, apart from the fact you get hundreds of millions of hits, you'll get lots and lots of references to achievement style thinking, McClellan, etc. So anyway... Fundamental to achievement thinking is five core characteristics. And the reason I would have gone off on the tangent, here I go again, uh, (laughs) at the the accreditation workshop was, it's for me, one of the strong things that we are trying to achieve in our sort of, you know, just use a simplistic phrase, culture change programs, 
is to teach people how to use achievement thinking. Because if we can put in place achievement thought processes inside an organization, then it's just logic that that organization will outperform its past and will probably outperform its competitors. And so as part of that culture change program, I would always talk to my client folks about, look, how can we develop this achievement thought process in your people? And how can we focus on what we would call the causal factors in the OCI OEI survey to actually grow and establish achievement thinking and achievement behavior rather than non-achievement? So anyway, let's come mm-hmm. back to that, and I'll link into that stuff as we go. So the five characteristics of achievement thinking. Firstly is a preoccupation with standards of excellence. So in each of these five characteristics, Clay told me, and I can only agree, is that it's the first word that's the most important one. It's a preoccupation with standards of excellence. So that notion of a preoccupation is that the person is constantly thinking about what they are doing, how they are doing it, and what they need to do to do it very well, preoccupied with standards of excellence. So, I mean, I, I seem to recall I, I t- told the story about the, the Maori gang guy in the 80s with a big mallet and a wall. So way, way back in the uh, mid to late 1980s, we were employed by a government agency that was setting up job opportunities for people in Maori gangs as a way of decriminalizing those organizations. Mm. And for all of the bad press Sir Robert Muldoon got over the years, much of it's somewhat deserved it, he actually establish this program, which is an extremely innovative one. But part of our role was to help these groups get into proper employment situations. It was called the Group Employment Liaison Scheme. And again, another long story short, one these these people were quite good at breaking things, so it made sense that if you needed a demol- demolition unit, call them in. Right. And so on a Saturday morning, I happened to be down there just hanging around with these incredibly huge, big, tattooed fellows who were demolishing an old house in the CBD area. Uh-huh. And this is my example of preoccupation with standard of excellence. And also the next one about self-set goals, by the way, but I'll get to that. This guy picked up the big, this bloody great big mallet, looked at the wall and said, that's a three-minute wall. And then he proceeded to demolish that wall in pretty much precisely three minutes. <laughs> you know, So that's a, that's a preoccupation with standard of then it's put aside the lifestyle that you may or may not agree with that the guy lives. But here he was, he saw a task, he immediately evaluated how long that would take him, how long he could take to do it, said it's three minutes, and then did it in exactly three minutes. So that's a high achievement individual. And get, so it got a satisfaction from that. So it's got a satisfaction sense of accomplishment so. from it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So our job was to now try to channel that achievement thinking into a leadership role in that organization and away from criminal activities into more commercial activities, which was quite successful. But then, of course, governments come along and they disestablish the unit. <laughs> As governments do, everything changes and all remains the same. So they went back to where they used to be. So preoccupation with the standards of excellence. The second is a preference for self-set goals. Again, that first word is the key, a preference for self-set goals. So people who hire an achievement like to work to their own standards. And so if they have to work to imposed goals, as we mostly do in large corporates, then they will tend to set their goals around that. And and what the research shows is they'll actually set their goals higher. So, I mean, to use a very simplistic illustration, if I'm high in achievement and my company says, I want you to sell $100 million worth of widgets this year, then I will accept that goal, of course, after discussion, negotiation, whatever, around the goal setting process. But at the end of it, I've got to do a million dollars a year I will set for myself a goal of a million one hundred or something like that. 
that's slightly higher. And we used to find that in industrial safety. We did a lot of work in the 1980s and 90s in industrial safety, and it sort of got too easy, so we veered away from it. But you would see that achievement thinking in individuals when you talk to managers about what's an acceptable reduction in injury rate. And they'd say, well, it'd be great if we could drop it down by 50% or something like that. And then you talk to the people out there, put them through some processes to identify issues, et cetera, and then say, so what would be a reasonable goal for you guys to set in terms of lost time injury rates? And they say 100% sounds like a good idea. It's their fingers and toes after all. Right. <laughs> and so you can teach that stuff. You know, If you'd asked them straight away, they might have said, well, 25% would be achievable. But after you teach them a little bit about the achievement thinking process and then get them to talk about what goal they might set, they go for a fairly audacious kind of goal. So one, a preoccupation with standard of excellence. Two, a preference for self-set goals. Three, a belief that personal effort can make a difference. So this, again, is a fundamental act of a high-achievement individual is the belief that if something is not working, then I can do something about that. It's not about it's my fault or I have to fix or anything like that. It's just a natural inclination to here's a problem and I will attempt to try and solve that problem and I'll put every effort I can into solving it because I have a fundamental belief that my personal effort can make a difference. Mm. If you're listening to this, don't get caught up in the uh, the high internal locus of control stuff, etc., which is similar but fundamental to achievement thinking is there are some things I cannot control. So I identify what I can and do something about it, identify what I can't and just get on with it. So it's not about that high internal locus of control where it's unacceptable to be in a situation where I can't have an impact. But it's this fundamental belief that personal effort can make a difference. So again, silly story around that one is right way back in the gosh, late 80s when we started doing some work in Australia as a New Zealand-based company, we set up a, um, a series of, call them in the industry, showcases. So a lot of our consultants out there will be familiar with that. You do a mail out of some description, which was easier in those days with <laughs> direct mail than electronic nowadays. But you do a mail out and say, we're going to present all this research, et cetera, et cetera. Come along for free, get a cup of coffee, blah, blah. And uh, we had 200 people registered to attend the one in Sydney that we'd launched. And blow me down, if the date that we put that on didn't uh, end up being the same day as, I can't remember the details because it's a long time ago now, it was something like the train drivers went on strike and the bus drivers or the bus conductors went on strike back in those days. So the bus drivers were the only people that were working in public transport. So again, the details don't matter because I can't remember them, but I was staying at CBD, the showcase was on the North Shore somewhere, Cremorne or whatever. And uh, I had no idea how to get from A to B. People at the hotel said, don't catch a taxi. You'll spend two hours in a traffic jam. Get a bus. So I went down to Wynyard Station. Uh, Again, doesn't matter. Bus stop number five for bus number 10. And it would say Milson's Junction or something like that on the front of it. Remember, this is back in the day. This was pre-high-tech stuff. And so I'm standing there at bus stop number five, and along comes bus number seven. And I sort of, uh, so I poked my head in the door. I said, is this, going, is this bus going to Milson Junction? He said, yes, it is. And I hopped on. And I noticed as it, as it rooted its way slowly but surely onto the bridge, people would get on and say, is this the bus to Milson's Junction? Yes, it is. And the, and the bus driver went from being very pleasant about it to be real will, grumpy Will you it. stop <laughs> asking me? <laughs> exactly. And then this chirpy little kid, he was probably, couldn't have been any more than 11 or 12, carrying a school satchel and a violin case got on the bus, said, is this the bus to Milson Junction? The bus driver said, yes, it is. And he said, do you know you got the wrong sign up? 
And the bus driver opened the door and looked and said, oh, I have two, I'm sorry. And he wound it on to uh-huh. the number, number 10 Mills Junction. Now, obviously, I haven't followed that kid's career, but I would stake my life on whatever he decided to do, he's going to be enormously successful at, whether it was a volu- uh, violinist or commercial government, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's an extreme example of a fundamental belief that my effort can make a difference. Whereas everybody else, I have to say myself included, because that was my, one of, I think, my second visit to Sydney in my life, simply said, oh, okay, and got on the bus. Whereas he said, here is a problem. I can do something about this. So I'll tell the bus driver that he's got the wrong number up. Right. And so that's that belief that personal effort can make a difference. So preoccupation with standards of excellence, preference of self-set goals, and the belief that personal effort can make a difference. The fourth is a belief in cause and effect. So this might sound simplistic, but it's extraordinarily powerful. The opposite of cause and effect is, is, as McClellan used to call it, fate, luck, magic, and chance. And so it's not a belief in with any luck or fate will look after it or with a bit of luck, etc. chance. It's cause and effect. So if this is happening, something must have caused it. And if I do this, i.e. cause, what will be the implications of that i.e. effect? which is one of the reasons it has such strong association with industrial safety, or any form of safety for that matter, I guess, is that when accidents happen, it's generally a lack of cause and effect. So something doesn't move, a valve doesn't open properly because it's jammed tight, so that somebody puts a crowbar in it and ratches it, and the valve breaks and the gas spurts out and somebody gets seriously injured. Complete lack of cause and effect thinking. What might happen if I ratchet it open with right. a crowbar? Probably not a good idea, right? Right. And so that fourth one, again, is a fundamental part of it, and it's a belief, that first word, a belief in cause and effect. And so one of the things that McClellan did, for instance, was to look back over history and the implications of cause and effect and these other elements of achievement thinking for historical development circumstances, etc. And again, to make it very simplistic, one of the uh, cultures he studied was the ancient Greek culture, which lasted for approximately 600 years. This is extremely rounding stuff. And there were 200 years of incline when it became the greatest empire in history, 200 years of being at the top of the tree, if you like, and then 200 years of slow decline. Uh They they got the crap beaten out of them by various other countries. And so McClellan used that as an illustration to talk about during those years of incline, there was an extremely high belief in cause and effect. So that one of the phrases he used in one of his publications was the general addressed the troops on the morning of the battle mm. and said, we will win today because our swords are three inches longer than theirs are and our shields are made of a harder metal. And so if you're on the front line about to march in holding out your sword, you know you've got a reasonable chance of meeting the other guy three inches before he can get to you. And if you do miss, put your shield up because it's made of harder metal than theirs. Hmm. And so that suggests they've had some spies in the other camp. They've gone in and they've stolen or they've picked up some swords and stuff off the battlefield. They've done their analysis. They've thought about this. And it's relatively, to use an overused term, motivating for me on the front line to think, okay, these guys have done their homework. Typically in the 200 years of decline, he recorded the general address the troops on the morning of the battle and said, we will win today because I have consulted the Oracle and the chicken entrails look very favorable. Yes. And so if you're on the front line and you don't follow the oh, Oracle, shit. you're not a great believer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or, exactly. Or, or, you know, I cracked open an egg this morning and it looked like a, you know, dagger or something. Oh, God, I'm going to die. You know, so exactly. that can get in your head too. It reminds me, Sean, as well. I'm, I was just trying to recall it. 
but they talk about like the birth of science. Maybe that's an yeah. extreme claim. But it was, I'm just trying to recall the story. It was a Greek river that would fill up with mud. So like the ocean filled up with mud kind of thing. It stuck all the ships. And it was the difference between people at the time thought it was, you know, the gods punishing them and stuff yep. like this. Yep. But then they worked out, well, no, it's because the rivers was bringing down silt and all yep. this kind of stuff, you know, so it's that cause yep. and effect that, kind of that, thinking. That, but before that, then, that had just never occurred to anyone. Correct. So, I mean, science is the opposite of magic. So science is trying to put certainty to uncertainty and reason to unreason. And that's where, I mean, Clay, Clowland were very scientific people. But again, I'll, I'll give you another illustration. This is a industrial safety illustration, a chemicals company that we worked with, again, way, way back, would have been in the probably early early 90s in New Zealand, in Wellington. But they were a chemicals company, and one of the waste gases that came off from what they did uh, had a propensity to make people very sick. So obviously they were very careful about all of that. And one of the things that they couldn't understand, which is why they came to us, was randomly it appeared a number of people were getting sick from this chemicals poisoning for no known reason. Uh-huh. They weren't all working in the same location. They weren't necessarily in, even in the same building. And their approach to this was, and this is the magic stuff, is it seems to be completely random. So we went in with the approach of, well, it can't be random. There has to be something that's causing that. So we hired a biochemical engineer. So because, you know, I don't, we don't understand chemistry stuff. That's not our job. So we hired one who did, and we worked with that person. And one of the properties that came out when we looked at this particular chemical and the gas version of it was that it was particularly attracted to heat. Mm -hmm. And people who were very hot were quite susceptible to getting injured by it. So they knew that. So they had protective clothing and all the rest of it. But again, to cut a very long story short, about three months' worth of investigation, what we discovered was that certain people, so-called random individuals, would duck off to the toilets or out the back door to have a quick cigarette. And when they'd come back into the plant, of course, their lips were hot. And right. the chemical in this gaseous form would immediately hit them in the lips and make them sick. So every we, we then we developed that hypothesis, and every single person who experienced was poisoning was a smoker. Yep. Wow. So that's cause and effect. There is no such thing as <laughs> random. It has to have a relationship somewhere. And the fifth is a thirst, again, that all-important first word, thirst for feedback. So if I'm high in achievement, I need to know how I'm going. I need to get some feedback. I need to evaluate. Emphasis, again, is on self-evaluation and know how well I am performing in my own mind and in the mind of those that will judge me so that I can adjust my performance as I go. So those five characteristics are quite key. I love that, Sean. You you had me thinking, I try to set... I don't do New Year's resolutions, but I do do New Year's goals Yep. with my achievement hat on and try to set achievement-type goals. And a simple example, but I think it always captures well, is fitness-type goals yep. because I think they connect so obviously to a lot of that stuff. So for me, I've set a goal of running a certain distance over the year, which is the furthest I've ever run, so it's a bit higher than last year kind of thing. Yep talking about so that's the goal excellence i break it down into 10 months not 12 right (laughs) because that gives you a little bit of time up your sleeve basically in case something goes wrong or whatever yep yep or to go a bit further i believe that personal effort makes a difference i mean you got to get out there and run right so there's no getting around that and that it 
you actually get better at it the more you do it, you know. Belief that in cause and effect, well, it's pretty obvious <laughs> in this yeah. case. And then the thirst for feedback, I've got the tracking app on my phone or whatever, so it's telling me, you know, how many Ks I'm knocking off every week. You know, so I just always think of that as like simple because I think with, you know, like an athletic pursuit, the link between cause and effect and effort making a difference is very yep. obvious. Yep. But it's the same in all kinds of goal setting, you know, all yep. kinds of circumstances. And, and that's a, a very, a very good classic illustration. I've set a goal. I've set the goal high. I'll do what I can to strive to accomplish that goal. I'll check on my progress and seek feedback, et cetera. So as you say, it's all those elements. Not for you or not to you, but I'll also add, and you've got to be careful you don't get perfectionistic about that because there's a fine line difference between perfectionism and achievement. So to talk Clay Lafferty's story around that is one of the things that surprised him, and he just couldn't understand it, and I remember a number of long discussions with him about this, is that McClellan found that people who were high high achievers, as he began to call them, seemed to have a relatively high burnout rate. And that just did not compute for Clay, being the cognitive psychologist he was, that if you have a a thought style, a thinking style, a self-image style called achievement, that is, to use one of our terms, constructive, and is about seeking a sense of accomplishment from what you do, how the hell can it burn you out? It just didn't make sense. Mm. So he looked in quite some depth at McClellan's work and made a a decision that was quite fundamental to the circumplex. And that is, he felt several of the individual examples that McClellan talked about as being high achievement, he would actually describe as more high perfectionistic or high competitive. And so setting goals, as you've just talked about there, is pure achievement. But you can easily turn that into perfectionistic when you keep increasing the goal every day. Or if you sick one day, therefore have to do two rounds the next day rather than just sticking to the one plus a little bit, etc. And so there's a very fine line between achievement perfectionistic and there's an equally fine line between perfectionistic and competitive. And I've always thought that the items that illustrate that fine line very well in the LSI is that the achievement item is enjoys a challenge, the perfectionistic item is looks for challenges, and the competitive item is everything is a challenge. So it's about, yes, you set your goals for fitness, et cetera, et cetera, but you've got to enjoy that. And the day you stop enjoying it, you're slipping into perfectionistic nature. And you do see that, which is why sometimes, you know, you'll open your iPad and have a look at the news media over breakfast in the morning or something, and you'll see some famous retired athlete who's still only in their mid-40s or something has dropped dead. And it's every possibility that it was maybe perfectionistic style that was driving them, not achievement style. It is quite difficult to tell the difference. But it's when it's become slightly more obsessive than fun, you've crossed that all-important line. Mm, yeah, you know, interesting for me because I use a tracker app thing for for yep. tracking these runs, right, Sean? I've got a lot of friends, particularly back home in New Zealand, who use another particular app where it can compare everyone, so they can all see each other's times and stuff. Yeah, and I just don't want to get on there because I know I have a. I can get drawn into the competitive stuff very easily, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I just don't. I don't want to go there because it's it's my goal. I don't even necessarily tell people. What, I haven't actually told you what the goal is, what the distance is, because to me that's not. It's my goal. Yeah, that's know? right. And, and so there's, a, there's only one person who needs to know what your goal is, and there's only one person that's the same person who needs to know how well you achieve that goal or not. Uh, Giving that information to other people is completely and utterly pointless. 
and potentially, in fact, dangerous because, of course, you now get into comparison, so by definition, you're in the competitive style. And although none of us like competitive managers, and I'm sure everybody that's listening to this has worked with a competitive individual and coached them through reducing that, but the fact is we love a competition. I mean, every Saturday we put 13, 11 or 15 contenders against each other on a field of some sort in a gladiatorial situation and let them half kill each other. And so we, we get caught up in that competition. It's what's called an artifact. It's an artifice. It's not achievement. It's, and again, it's worth mentioning in the context of achievement thinking that competitive style is encouraged in very subtle ways in organizations. So right now, as we listen to this around the world, there's probably thousands of, let's just call them district managers for want of a title, running a meeting with their branch managers and they're looking for ways of motivating them to up their performance levels or whatever it might be, et cetera. And so it just seems natural that they would put up some sort of PowerPoint slides that shows the sales for each of the areas or the branches or whatever. In the mistaken belief, the people who are low on the graph are going to say, oh, gosh, I better pull my finger out or whatever. But, of course, it doesn't work that way. As soon as we show comparisons of individual performance, whether it's an individual individual or an individual branch or a division or whatever, what we are saying to people out there is it is not so much how you perform that matters, it's how you compare that matters. And once we do that, all sorts of psychological factors come in, including, of course, the obvious one of excuses. So if I happen to be running the branch that's got the lowest sales revenue right now, I won't sit there logically and say, oh my gosh, I must improve my branch performance. How can I go about doing that? I'll say, yeah, but we look at our demographics. Our demographics have got much significant less uh-huh. money to spend than the demographics in the other branch areas. And, and I'll immediately go into that kind of psychology to make myself feel safe. It's a form uh-huh. of avoidance thinking. So it achieves absolutely nothing. And if it achieves ev- anything, it achieves the wrong thing. Here's a question for you, Sean, because I've heard um, the saying, High achievement thinkers, high achievement individuals do well in competitive situations. Yes, yes they do, but they're not driven by the competition, they're driven by their own goals. So if I were to make a competition between high achievement and high competitive, I'd put my money on the high achievement people, because the high competitive will be looking over their shoulder or constantly comparing themselves to somebody else, which is energy not directed on achieving the task. Whereas the high achievement person will have all their energy directed on achieving the tasks. That's a bit of a no-brainer. So for what it's worth, you just prompted another memory. I mean, if we go right back to the late 70s, when we started working with human synergistics in New Zealand at that stage, of course, you know, like anybody, we were, we were interested in clarifying, okay, this is American. New Zealand is a different set. Does it work in New Zealand or not? And so one of the things we used to do is back in the pre-technology days, of course, you had hand-drawn profiles and all those sorts of things. So you'd see what people's profiles look like. So we might have 20 people in a workshop room. We're about to do something like Desert Survival or Subarctic or something like that. And we would look like we're randomly allocating people to groups, but we would actually pick all the high achievement people and put them in the same team and maybe all the high avoidance people and put them in the same team or whatever, whatever we were looking at at that time. And it was our way of saying, well, if this stuff's any good, then the high achievement group is going to outperform the non-achievement groups on problem solving a la desert survival. And it happened every time, every time, absolutely guaranteed. And so it gave us a lot of confidence as we, you know, the obvious question is, yeah, but this is American, does it work in New Zealand? Is it American, does it work in Australia? Yes, it does, because the more the group uses high achievement thinking, 
the better they're going to be at solve problem solving and all that kind of stuff. So it's an absolute truism. I love it, Sean. Thanks for taking us for a trip down uh, the history of Mem- memory lane. Memory lane down the achievement style. You know, for me, those five characteristics are just really interesting to keep in mind. You know, how do you sum up a style? I think they do a great job. Preoccupation with standards of excellence, a preference for self-set goals, a belief that personal effort makes a difference, a belief in cause and effect, and a thirst for feedback. I love it. Thank you very much, Sean. I'll see you on another podcast soon. Thank you, Dominic. All the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.